Good evening, everyone. Do feel comfortable moving down closer so we can be a little more cozier. Formally, good evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening to the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco and to welcome you to this evening's Meet the Artist program. This evening, Friday, April 11th, 2014. Um, the Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil with adult education coordinated by Cecilia Beam, uh, produces a large number of programs, including these Meet the Artist interviews, the uh, points of view lectures on Wednesdays, and um, the talks on ballet, and the Ballet 101 course, programs for children, which include the um, community matinees here in the Opera House, which is a great treat for school children from all over Northern California, <clears throat> and of course our renowned dance in schools and communities. All of this information is easily to be found on our website, so go to sfballet.org where you can find information about programming, um, videos, interviews, and of course you can listen to these interviews which are recorded for podcasting. All of that said then, welcome not only to you all, but to those who may be listening to this program at a future time via the internet. I am ever so pleased, actually in a bittersweet kind of way, to be in conversation tonight with San Francisco Ballet Orchestra concertmaster Roy Milan. Roy, thank you so much for being here. Even us. my great pleasure, Mary. This is I think, yeah, be yes, sure you yes, bellow right, right into it. Yes. Yeah, there we go. <clears throat> and when I say bittersweet, it has been announced that Roy is going to <clears throat> retire at the end of this season. And that brings to a close a chapter of how many years? Well, I thought I'd wait for a round number. This is number 40. So I was the original. Oh. <laughs> Thanks so much. I was the first concertmaster and only concertmaster of this ballet orchestra that was formed 40 years ago. And it's the, just a few words about the orchestra in general. It's a, probably a unique institution in the ballet world. Is that correct? Well, uh, in what sense, Mary? I mean, the, well, the, New York has ballet orchestras yeah. too. They f I just remember they formed the orchestra instead yes. of gathering together yes. um, a pickup band at every season. That's right. Um, and there's been well, a consistency to musicians and... Yes, sure, that, uh, that early story. I guess that um, how it started is that uh, a violinist who was concertmaster of ABT uh, and his friend Michael Smuin came to San Francisco, and at that time, the orchestra was pick-up players, as Mary said. And Alex Horvath is the name of this violinist and concertmaster, and he said to his friend Michael, you should get a regular orchestra. So uh, what was unique is that for the first time in San Francisco's history, they 
formed an orchestra just to play for the ballet. And I was in at the outset of that. So you have been hither and thither, and you've seen a lot of repertoire, and I don't even know where to start. Um, start with the role of the concertmaster. You're not just another fiddler in the section. Uh, well, especially with ballet, because the ballet repertoire includes far more concerto and solo chamber work and so on than concertmaster of a symphony does, uh, which makes it a much tougher job. I mean, uh, my colleague in, at the symphony, the concertmaster there, Sasha, gets to play three or, three or four times a year, a concerto, that sort of thing. But over the years, I've had to play every, pretty much every major concerto and of course, when it comes up on a program, you have to play it very often twice a day, which is just, it just doesn't happen outside of the ballet world. Uh, most soloists with symphonies get to take the evening off and just play their concerto. But of course, many a time I've had to play everything. In fact, there was a time many years ago now where there were three violin concertos that comprised the evening. It was the Brock Concerto, the Philip Glass Concerto, and a concerto by a, an Australian composer, whose name I forget. Um, and at the time, the critic wrote that that alone was worth the price of admission. <laughs> I worked hard that night. Well, I should say. Um, what are the duties of a concertmaster? I know you actually do have some fairly official um, things that are expected of the concertmaster. Yes. Well, the, the duties in common with regular concertmasters is, first and foremost, to mark the bowings in the parts for the top string players, the first violins, second violins, violas. And you have to coordinate all the bowings. First, you have to uh, agree with the, the conductor about the phrasing necessary, and what sorts of things they would want to hear from the orchestra, and then I have to be able to translate that into usable terms by marking an up bow or a down bow, or very often, which string to play the thing on. So that's the basic chore that every concertmaster has to deal with, and it takes a great deal of time. Um, then there is the coordination with the conductor. Uh, it's a sort of a sixth sense you get uh, as to what his intentions are, and then you have to relate to the orchestra so that your section, particularly the, the first violins, play together these directions. Now, that's something that's much harder than it sounds, and um, there'll be young people coming in next year to try for my job. They'll have to learn this, and there are a lot of things they'll have to learn, but you can't just play when you think it's the right time to play, even if you've had the cue from the conductor. Because you have to realize that people that in the last row are not necessarily going to see it as quickly or as, you know, as easily. Uh, and if, if my old friend Joseph Silverstein, who was concertmaster for many years of the Boston Symphony, told me you have to play with what you hear from behind while leading. Now that's quite a trick. <laughs> I'm um, relating to this. 
in a way that we, we spoke to several weeks ago with Katita Waldo, and she talked about dancing in the corps de ballet, and how the, it doesn't matter how great you, how, how you know the choreography, you still have to be in sync with the other girls in the line. And so it sounds like there's an element to this that I never thought about. Oh yes, it's very tricky. Uh, and uh, that makes a ballet conductor very different from a symphony conductor. I mean, so much is different from symphonic playing. First of all, and this is one of the things I won't miss next year, the music for ballet is always tailor-made to make the dancers look good, which puts the conductor really on the spot because very often they will have to change an interpretation to accommodate the dancers, which is all, all part of the act. But uh, with a symphony conductor, of course, they can directly deal with the music. That's what, uh, what it's all about. So for a, con uh, a ballet conductor, it's much harder to. And it takes a certain kind of a person who doesn't get frustrated by all of this. I've seen many fine fights over the years <laughs> with, with conductors and choreographers. In fact, I'm sorry there aren't more today. Uh, I've seen conductors stand up against choreographers in the early days. Well, uh, uh, on the other hand, some of the earlier choreographers, like Lou Christensen, was very much in touch with what the music should be, was very respectful of the composers, uh, and he was one of the great choreographers who, of course, never got in the way of music. He used to make the dancers uh, listen and get what, what he was getting out of the music rather than just distort it to make things easier for them. That was true, of course, with Balanchine, working with people like Stravinsky. It was, it was given that the music was it. And he, uh, there, there have been choreographers, Mark Morris is one, Newmeyer is another, who thoroughly respect the music and who actually know and enjoy music. That's uh, something that can't always be said for choreographers, as one discovers over the years. <laughs> um, another thing I've observed about a concertmaster and the orchestra is you're the one who really leads the, um, the movement in the pit. The, it's time for the conductor to enter, and you're the one that gets everybody to stand up. Right, that's also a matter of timing. Because sometimes if one stands up too soon, the orchestra masks the conductor's entrance, so the audience doesn't start to applaud. Uh, and if he comes out too soon, they start to applaud before uh, the orchestra's up, and by the time he gets to the podium, sometimes the, the applause has stopped. So it's all a matter of timing, this whole business. And it's all a matter of good theater, too. Yes. <laughs> Can you, I mean, you've already mentioned some great um, thoughts about these 40 years some of the high points of being a ballet concertmaster. I want to talk about some of the other things you do in a minute, but... Well, there have been a few, a few uh, moments. Um, I remember particularly, uh, you know, there have been some temperamental things one sees, of course, dealing with theater people for so many years. But the, the fun things I remember are the, the Beethoven Triple Concerto at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, and the Four Seasons, Helgi's Ballet, in Paris. Those were particular fun for me because my mom and dad, who uh, lived in Europe in those days, could come to those performances. Um, so those stand out in my mind. That leads me to another question. Um, 
the ballet can't always travel with the entire orchestra. That would be prohibitive. But the principals often travel with the ballet. Is that true? Uh, it's not true so much as it was for reasons of expense, I suppose, but also because of uh, house contracts. If there is a pit orchestra in an opera house wherever, and I know this applies in New York, uh, one is obligated to use them. One is obligated to, uh, to use the pit orchestra. So it happens much less now. And that includes the principals? Yes. Um, what if there happens to be a principal solo? Are you, are you considered to be part of the traveling ensemble, or do they have to take what the local orchestra can do? It, it depends, again, on the, on the house. It's been some years since I traveled you know, to play that way. But it used to be uh, just a matter of the conductor saying what they wanted. Mm. Yeah. That, now, filling my job next year is a very difficult one because this, one of the unique things about this orchestra is that the concertmaster is not appointed in the usual way by the conductor and given a separate contract, which means that they're not actually covered by the union regulations. Uh, so that gives the conductor very free hand, of course, to choose a favorite musician or someone with whom he's worked successfully before. Um, but since they made my position here, in order to protect me, it was wonderful how it happened. When we were looking for conductors several years ago, uh, there was mention made about the fact that new conductors come in and bring their own concertmasters, which is very true, often. And... Uh, my dear colleagues on the orchestra committee went to the union and got them to agree to make me a tenured concertmaster, which is the first time that had happened. Since that time, there were a few other instances of concertmasters getting tenure. Uh, but that also means that when the auditions are held, they have to be under the same union guidelines as auditions for section players. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how that all pans out next year. Well, I've um, heard it said that this is a kind of a search that, I mean, it's not just the same as hiring another, any other violinist, that um, they will wait until the right person comes along and they may yeah. have to be within interim until the right person comes along. That's and, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good decision they made yeah. to mm -hmm. time it over the next couple of years. I guess they have several people who will be trying out. Mm -hmm. Of course, most of them are young people. And uh, you don't learn these things in school. So it'll be very interesting for me to watch what happens. <laughs> well, and they'll be maybe where you were 40 years ago? Yes, but the company is 40 years ahead of that. Oh. <laughs> well, for those of you who've come in since we started, I'm in conversation with Roy Milan, who is concertmaster of the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra, which is its official name. Yes. Um, and, but who is retiring at the end of this season, so we're being particularly reminiscent here. Uh -huh. um, what on earth are you going to do with all this free time? Well, uh, first and foremost, I'm going to play music for its own sake, something that I do already, of course, a good deal. And I have several other concertmaster positions, California Symphony, uh, Nicole Permont's Opera Parallel from the Conservatory, which is a wonderful young uh, contemporary chamber opera that is going to start touring. And I've played concertmaster there for some years. 
And then I have a string quartet, I have a regular piano trio. I'm the first, the initial violinist with the San Francisco contemporary music players, something I'll keep doing. Uh, and most of all, I've been on the faculty at UC Santa Cruz for some 30 years. And I had always squeezed my teaching load into the opera house dark nights. Mondays were off and I would teach from eight in the morning until eight at night, I still do. Uh, that I'll be able to space out over the week. I live in Santa Cruz, and that's uh, uh, another main reason that I decided it was enough, because to commute every day from Santa Cruz is getting to be much more of a chore than it used to be. And it's always that sense that you get in the car with that feeling in your stomach that you're not quite certain you'll get there in time for the downbeat, <laughs> which is why I always leave two and a half hours before the downbeat. And sometimes it takes almost that long. Um, what about the Telluride Festival? Is yes. that still going? It is still going. I started a chain music festival with uh, the marvelous uh, symphony pianist Robin Sutherland. Uh, we had our 40th anniversary there last summer. Mm. And that's still going. We're planning for our 41st. In fact, we made a CD last summer to commemorate the 40th anniversary. And this summer we have Alan Glassman, the tenor from the Met who's coming to do Rachmaninoff songs with us. So that's another thing. The summers are, are going to be the same. Um, music festivals, I play Concertmaster in Mendocino, also the Astoria Festival in Astoria, Oregon. Um, and then I go to Maine to play chain music where I have a, a little summer cabin. So I, I think I might be busier than I am now, but without the commuting. Oh, that's but nice. Mary, the other thing that's most important to me uh, when you're talking about a day at the opera house and getting up mm -hmm. in order to get here in time for, let's say, a 10.30 rehearsal, it means getting up the crack of dawn. Now, I always do an hour and a half of yoga every morning. I have done since I was 15. So I always do that, but sometimes I don't have time to practice properly. I have to warm up when I get here after driving all those hours. I look forward to getting up every morning, doing my yoga, and practicing the violin for two hours. What a joy. Mm. <laughs> well, we will, be, we will be pleased that you are going to be joyful, even though we will be missing you. Well, um, let, we've managed to save a little bit for questions, and I'm hoping that the folks will be able to lead us into more interesting stuff here. Um, does somebody have a question? And we're going to dive right here. I'll, re I'll repeat the question, too. Which composer is technically the most difficult to perform? Do you mean instrumentally or? Yes, uh, well, I mean, there are so many of them. Tonight you'll hear a bunch of hard stuff. Shostakovich, very hard. Stravinsky. Yeah, these are basically the, the hard ones for ballet, yeah. Is somebody on this side? Okay. Well, I was born in South Africa. Question is about background. Yeah. Yes, I was, yeah. yes, I was born in South Africa, and when I was uh, 15, I won a scholarship to study overseas, and I went to London. My parents took me, uh, where I studied with Yehudi Menuhin. And then a year later, uh, he suggested that I come to New York 
to go to Juilliard and study with the, the greatest violin teacher of the 20th century, Ivan Galamian. And he, uh, he taught all of the, my generation of violinists. I'm speaking of people like Perlman, Zuckerman, Kyung Wah Chung. Uh, the list is endless. And actually, they, they were in my class, so I came to Juilliard and had to uh, match wits with all these people. It was quite terrifying. But then uh, I went to the Curtis Institute, uh, Curtis Institute in Philadelphia after that to study with Ephraim Zimbalist, uh, the great violinist. And I, uh, before he died, he asked me to write his biography, which I did. And it's, uh, it's been published. And someone said, you know, that I should, now I should write another book called uh, Life Beneath the Tutu, <laughs> Memoirs of a Concertmaster. And you might have since, to. It, since it took me 15 years to write the Zimmer's book, I'm not so sure. Of course, by that time, I'd be able to say more things than I could say today. <laughs> that sounds fun. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Um, thank you. That was a good, yes, good question. You. We had skipped over background early on. Um, question over here? Um, I'm going to go way over there. Yeah. Oh, tell us about your instruments. My your violin. violin. Well, it's an, it's an interesting story, really, because um, people often say you have a great violin, and I do have a great violin. Uh, but when I was a student, I actually had a poorer violin, and so when I went to Juilliard and then later Curtis, I borrowed instruments, Italian instruments, that belonged to the school. So when I graduated, I was in need uh, of a violin. And uh, someone made me an anonymous gift of $15,000 when I graduated in Philadelphia. And I took that money to look for a violin. Now, in those days, that, that was more money than it is today. But you couldn't really touch a Strad or a Guarnerius or any violin of that type. So I bought a French violin, a Viome, who was, is a respectable maker. Uh, but decided very quickly after I came here to the, my first job was with the San Francisco Symphony here, that I didn't like the violin. And while I was going to school in Philadelphia, an Australian colleague of mine, also a student of Zimbalist's, had a violin that was pretty famous because it was absolutely amazing. Uh, it was as good as any violin I'd ever played and everyone felt the same way. And it was made by a man in Australia whose name was Arthur Smith. So I had this French violin that I decided I disliked quite strongly. And I sold it in Los Angeles for profit and took that money and went to Australia to look for a Smith violin. He was still alive. He was in his late 90s then. Uh, and I had quite a fun trip, actually, because I checked into hotels, ran ads in the newspaper, and sat in the hotel waiting for people to bring me violins made by him. And I eventually saw something like 35 of them. Now, not all of them were as wonderful as the one that I had gotten to know in Philadelphia, but several of them were very good. The trouble is that when people came and showed me these instruments, for which they, by the way, had paid in the vicinity of $300, they suddenly became uh, very fond of their instruments and decided not to sell. So I got to know uh, Smith's family. His son was the concertmaster of the Sydney Symphony, and he said that they had a bunch of 
good Smith vines that they'd been keeping aside, and he took pity on me and sold me one, which is the one I still use now. It's a beautiful copy of uh, Henrik Schering's Goneris del Jesu. And I remember when I came back with that violin, I bumped into Kyung Wa Chung. That may be a name not familiar to everyone, but she was one of the great violinists of that generation. And she had just bought Michael Rabin's Goneris del Jesu. He had died, and she bought it from the family. And we compared the fiddles. And she was astonished that you couldn't tell the difference. And many a time I've had people come to me and say, you know, what kind of a violin is that? And I always love to tell them, it's a smith. <laughs> and I, I'm tempted to tell them that my, my bow is a Wesson. <laughs> oh. Actually, I have wonderful violin bows. They belong to Zimbalist, and in his will, he left them to me. They're, they're worth more than the violin, actually. Oh, that's a lovely story. Does someone else have a wonderful question? All right, there you go. I'm wondering if the great violinists, and you have named some, are necessarily also good teachers. What a, what wonderful, a lovely question. Wonderful question, yes. Are, are the great violinists also good teachers? It's seldom the case, actually. Uh, uh, Galamian, the name that I mentioned, who was considered the greatest teacher of, of prodigies and so on, uh, was not a good player. But he was an am amazing scientist, and he could look at you and tell you what you ought to be doing for the next four years. Um, Menuhin uh, was a very insightful teacher, although he hadn't taught much when I was with him. And Zimbalist uh, was a great artist, and I learned a huge amount from him. But if I hadn't studied with Garamin first, it might have been more difficult to get the artistic things that he was trying to show me. Uh, the only violinist I can think of who was an equally good artist and teacher, there are two that come to mind. One is Arnold Steinhardt of the great Gorneri Quartet, and the other is Oskar Shumsky, who was a legendary violinist, although he wasn't celebrated as much as he should have been, and he was a brilliant teacher. He had many wonderful students, but it doesn't always follow. That's true in other disciplines as well. I'm sure. Absolutely. Sometimes when you aren't the most gifted performer, you have had to struggle harder, and you learn the inside story. Sure. Um, we have time for another question. If I can see a hand under the light here. There's one over there. Oh, there you go. Oh, when you well, go traveling with your violin, how do you yes. take care of it? Well, you have to take great care that they don't put it in the, in the baggage. And that, that becomes much more difficult every year. Uh, and in fact, there are airlines now that give you a hard time. And I've had to say it at one point, oh, this is especially with small airlines flying to Colorado and that kind of thing, that I had to uh, not go on the plane. Um, Usually, uh, a violin case, the way they make them today, can fit in the overhead compartment, but you have to have a complete one. It can't go under the seat, and it certainly can't go in the hold. Um, so I'm always right at the end of the... I'm right at the beginning of each section of, of loading so that I can push my way ahead and grab a whole locker. But you have to think about that. Cellists have to buy... 
a, a seat for their cello. And even then, it, they have to put them in certain seats by the bulkhead. And if those seats are not available, they're, they're told to, to uh, check them. And I know it well, that happened on one of the ballet tours. It was a double bass someone had to check, and it came out and rolled down the loading ramp and got a crack. Yeah, it's quite, quite some business these days. Oh, one more question. I thought I saw one. All right, you get the last one. Are you, are you talking about... Uh, well, I was going to repeat the question, how do yes. you see the symphony orchestra evolving? Unfortunately, you have to be concise in your answer Fine. because that could be a real dissertation. Yes, for sure. Um, now, are, you, are you talking about just the way music in general is going? You're not talking about ballet or something? Well, I've been with contemporary music players for 40 years, and I've worked with everybody, you know, and the people today. There's no way of telling. I mean, symphonies, they have to survive. That's why they're doing all these pops concerts and things and, and playing music that really is completely beneath them. But they also have interesting new ideas. And who can tell? I'll be, I'll be as interested as you to see. Well, that's going to have to be our final comment. Uh, for those of you who have just come in, we've had this wonderful conversation with concertmaster Roy Milan, who is facing the end of his 40 years at San Francisco Ballet and moving into uh, the next <laughs> phase of his life. Before I actually say thank you and good night, uh, do remember that we have two more programs this season, and go to the website, sfballet.org, where there's everything you could possibly want to know. And with that, I want to say, oh, Roy, thank you so much. This has just been delightful. My pleasure, Mary. We're going to miss you. Thank you.